Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. Honored today to have the multi-best-selling author, Michael Hyatt, joining us, whose recent book, Free to Focus, A Total Productivity System to Achieve More with Less, is joining us live from Nashville. Michael, welcome to On Leadership. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you. Great to have you, sir. It's such an honor to have you here on Leadership. You've written so many books around topics that Franklin Covey is passionate about, so I'm excited to dig right into some of your wisdom. You know, you are a productivity expert. You have a lifelong history of writing, speaking, hosting, interviewing, publishing books. I'd love it if you would just orient the audience to some of the life experiences, professionally and personally, that led you to become an expert on not just this topic, but kind of all the topics you speak about. Take a few minutes and tell us a bit about your journey. Well, first of all, Dr. Covey had a huge, huge impact on me. Not only the seven habits, but I was a Franklin Covey planner user for a number of years. And I was the guy like in college, which was a long, long time ago, that used a day planner and planned out and scheduled my time and all of that. When I first started blogging in 2004, I had a blog called Working Smart. And it was all about what I was learning about productivity and also goal setting. And so this has kind of been my, my bread and butter, but I really had to put it to the test in my own life when I became the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, which at the time was the seventh largest book company in the US, later acquired by HarperCollins. And I was trying to manage that very busy job, but with five daughters, and now I have nine grandchildren. So a very busy, crazy life. And at the early part of that tenure, I ended up in the emergency room three different times, thinking I was having a heart attack, but thank God I wasn't, but it was stress. But my doctor said, you've got to cut some stuff out of your schedule and you've got to get control of this stress or you might end up in here for real and then I might not be able to help you. So that, that was a huge wake up call. You know, Michael, the book is piercingly relevant. You know, Franklin Covey has a couple of points of view, if you haven't noticed, on productivity ourselves. I really liked your opening concept about this idea of total work and not in a good way. Can you give a yeah. little bit of texture around why total work should be a concept that people are addressing and identifying in their life. Yeah, so we live in a world where it's kind of a badge of honor to be able to say, man, I'm crazy busy or it's yeah. work all the time. Somehow that gives us a sense of significance and importance. And it's a very deceptive thing because if we're not careful, we're going to end up burning out and not doing our best work. And one of the things that uh, in recent years I've really come to identify as the hustle fallacy is I think is, is particularly pernicious. And that is this idea that if you're really serious about getting ahead, if you want to advance your career, you want to build your business, then it's got to be total work. You know, you got to be willing to put 80, 90 hours a week. Elon Musk has even advocated 100 hours a week. And I say hogwash. In fact, that is a recipe for burnout. And what I'm committed to, I, I'm committed to what I call the double win where you win at work and succeed at life. And I don't think we should have to choose between those two because I think we can do them both if we have the right productivity system and the right priorities. Michael, your book is called Free to Focus. And one of the main premises around the book is that productivity is defined less around efficiency and yes. success and more around freedom. Expand on the concept of why you think freedom is so valuable to people especially as it relates to their focus? Well, this was really the promise of productivity and efficiency and especially of technology. 
that, you know, once we get a smartphone, boy, then we're going to really have freedom. We're going to be super efficient, super effective. But no, that hasn't made, given any of us more freedom. What it's done is it's allowed us to fill up all those empty spaces, the margin in our life with more work. And so what I do at the very beginning of the book is to say, what is our productivity vision? What's the purpose of productivity? And I advocate it should be greater freedom. It should be freedom to focus on the priorities that matter most, the relationships that matter most, the projects that matter most. And in the book, I specifically talk about four different kinds of freedoms. I talk about, first of all, the freedom to focus. And focus is a superpower in an age of distraction. When there's, you know, we all have seven or eight inboxes, all kinds of things vying for our attention. And it's very difficult to do what Cal Newport calls deep work, where we're just locked in and focused on those projects that really move the needle in our business and in our life. Then there's also the freedom to be present. You know, that's another thing, a terrible thing actually about the smartphone is it allows us, if we're not careful, to be present everywhere except where we physically abide. And so the freedom to be totally focused so that if I'm in a meeting at work, I'm not worried or thinking about something that got left undone at home. And I'm a, if I'm with my loved ones, I'm not thinking about some project at work and wishing I were there, but I have the freedom to be totally present. The third freedom is just uh, the freedom to be spontaneous. You know, this is a thing too that I didn't used to value, but I see huge benefit in it today. So like, for example, if my uh, grandkids drop by the office, I don't want to be so programmed or over-programmed that I can't stop what I'm doing and just love on them a little bit. And then finally, something I learned when I was in, in Italy, and that is the freedom to do nothing. And they <laughs> even have a, a phrase for it, but it's the freedom to do nothing. And sometimes our biggest breakthroughs, our most important connections with the people we love happen when we're just doing nothing. We're just enjoying that time together. You know, I, when I read that, I validated one of my happiest parts of my day is when I am doing nothing. Usually on Saturday or Sunday, I like to just like sit out of my sunroom for an hour. I have three young boys, four, seven, and nine. So there's very little time to do nothing. But I enjoy just sitting doing nothing for an hour and I feel less guilty about it after reading your book. Good, that's exactly what I want. Because here's the thing about it is, when we do nothing, we rejuvenate. Yeah. And rejuvenation is the third chapter in the book, but rejuvenation right. is, is such a key thing. And so few leaders especially practice it. But one of the most important things you and I can do for our productivity, hands down, one of the most important things, get a good night's sleep. Because when you're not rested, you're unfocused, you have the, uh, a lack of ability to concentrate, you're just not as productive. But get a good night's rest, eat the right food, exercise, take care of yourself, take some time doing nothing. You know, that's one of the best things you can do if you really, really want to move the needle in your business and your personal life. Michael, your book integrates tightly with the website in a rich, you know, kind of bevy of tools. Talk a bit about the role the Freedom Compass plays in helping people focus their time on their top priorities. Yeah, this is, I think, one of the most helpful tools that we use with our clients and, and I talk about in the book. And here's the idea. Um, you're never more effective more efficient, you'll never have a greater impact than when you have your proficiency and your passion aligned. So let me explain what I mean by that, and I'll try to sketch out verbally what the diagram is in the book. So the idea is passion is what you love to do. The things that give you joy, the things that delight you, that lights you up, that get you out, the, out of bed in the morning, things you're proficient at, 
are, are sort of has a twofold aspect to it. It's the thing that, that you're really good at, but it's also the thing that drives the results in your current position or in the business that you're running. So it's got to be both of those. I call that in the book, the desire zone. Now, if you imagine a traditional compass, and if you imagine four quadrants in that compass, and the top quadrant, so this is like a, a two by two matrix, but it's switched 45 degrees, but at the very top is what I call the desire zone. That's where your, your passion and your proficiency come together. Due south, straight south, is what I call your drudgery zone. This is where you have neither passion nor proficiency. You don't enjoy doing that thing, and you know, you're not very good at it. And it's different for everybody, thankfully. You know, in fact, in our companies, if we look at the teams we're leading, everybody's desire zone is different, everybody's drudgery zone is different, which makes for tremendous teamwork when we align those things uh, up. So for me, for example, in my drudgery zone would be things like managing my email inbox, managing my calendar, booking my own travel, filing expense reports. I mean, just shoot me. I hate those things and I'm not very good at them. But my assistant, Jim, is phenomenal. Those things are in his desire zone. And it's not an accident that we got paired together. We actually hire based on the Freedom Compass. There's two other zones that can suck up a lot of time if we're not careful. And one is the disinterest zone where we're particularly good at something, but we've lost the joy. So, for example, in my business, when I first left the corporate world and started my own business in 2011, I had to do the accounting. And I'm pretty good at accounting. You know, understand QuickBooks, I was able to do it, but no joy in it. It was my disinterest zone. And the problem is it's not the best and highest use of me. And it doesn't really drive the business results. You know, I can't bill for it. You know, it's just stuff that has to be done. Then there's the distraction zone, which would be on the Freedom Compass due west, but this is where I've got passion about it, but I'm not very good at it. So for me, when I was first starting out in this new business, web development was kind of that. You know, I had enough chops just to waste a lot of time there, and it's often a place we go to escape, but I wasn't good enough to really do it professionally, so it consumed a lot of my time, and I didn't see the results of my business early on because I can't bill for it. You know, it wasn't, again, the best and highest use of my time. So it's critically important to know what your desire zone activities are, to do more of those, and that's the key to achieving more by doing less. Michael, I think that uh, in every book I have a favorite page, and I'm often calling it out. I think page 56 in your book, I won't test you on this, is the best because it is the pictures of the two, you know, compasses with two people's jobs. I found myself kind of like turning the book around, reading them, thinking about my own desired and drudgery areas. It's a great, it's a great tool to appreciate the role productivity can play in your life. In fact, you define productivity as, uh, as about doing more of what is in your desire zone and less of everything else. It, it seems a little high-minded. What advice would you give people who don't control their time? They're not the CEO, they aren't yep. an entrepreneur, right? They're just a standard guy like me that works in an organization and they have a little bit of control but not complete control over all their time and deliverables. How does someone build a life so they're more in their desire zone and less in their drudgery zone of the other ones? Yeah, well, let me just, just first, let me, I, I want to address that, but let me just kind of prove the premise of this achieve more by, by doing less. So this is something we really try to practice at Michael Hyde and Company. So we really encourage our employees not to work more, to, more than 40 hours a week. We don't bug them in the evenings. We don't bug them on the weekends because we know that rejuvenation time is so critical. Last year, 2018, my business grew 
I took 162 days off. Okay. So I was having better results and actually working less. That meant more time for the family, more time for the grandkids, you know, more time for my hobbies and all of that. But when I'm at work, it's highly impactful. Okay. So I'm a business owner. So, you know, maybe I get a pass because I've got a lot more control. But what about people that don't have control like you're asking? Here's the thing I think we've got to realize. First of all, we have to be stewards over what we've been given. So you may not have total discretionary time. And by the way, the idea that CEOs have total you know, control over their time is kind of a myth. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but you, let's just operate from that supposition. We have more control than we think. And I think if we can be good stewards and take control over the time that we do have control over and be good stewards of that, we'll find that that expands. So forget about what you don't have, focus on what you do have and be a better steward of that. Does that make sense? It does. In fact, you talk a lot about in the book, the power of saying no graciously, courageously, and how important that is to be able to be in your desire zone. Any practical tips you would give our listeners and viewers on being more courageous and diplomatic about saying no, having the kind of not to do list? Yeah, I think it begins with kind of a mindset, the realization that uh, time is a finite thing. You can't earn more of it. You can't buy more of it. You know, you got 168 hours a week. What that means is that it, there's always a trade-off. Every time I say yes, I'm going to say no to something else. Every time I say no, I'm saying yes to something else. So, Scott, if you were to come to Nashville where I live and you said, uh, hey, how about if we get, to get together for dinner tonight? Friday night, I'm going to be in town. Let's get together for dinner. And I would have to say no, because if I said yes to you, I'd be saying no to date night with my wife. So could I move some things around? Yes, but you get the idea. Saying yes to one thing is saying no to something else. So if we're going to have a life where it's not total work, if we're going to have a life where we have the opportunity to make sure that we win at work, but don't lose our life, like our health and our most important relationship in the process, we got to get good at saying no. And in the book, I talk about sort of this yes, no, yes principle that I learned from Dr. William Urry. And that is that when somebody makes a request, first thing I do is I affirm them for making the request. I don't try to shame them. You know, I just don't, I don't get, you know, belligerent or uh, angry about it. I just say, hey, thanks for asking me. And, you know, I'll go into a little bit more detail. But then I give them a very clear, very unequivocal no. So I don't, here's what I don't say. I don't say, hey, I'm busy right now. Why don't you check back with me in a week? Because guess what? They will. And then we're back right in the same conversation over again. So here's what I say. And this is a magic phrase. I say, you know, due to my other commitments, yeah. I'm going to have to say no to be faithful to them. Or in order to be faithful to my current com commitments, I have to say no to you. Well, first of all, that contextualizes it. Yeah. Everybody automatically understands that I've got other commitments and I'm being faithful to those. That's good. I'm being in alignment integrity with myself. And then I end with something positive. So it's yes, no, yes. So yes would be, you know, hey, congratulations on doing that thing you're doing. You know, I'm sure there's just the right person out there for it. You know, good luck, something like that. But I literally have set up email templates for almost every common request that I get that has a very thoughtful response so that I can say no with grace and not feel guilty about it. And I've had so many people write me back after receiving that and saying, well, I'm disappointed but thank you so much for getting back to me. Because the average person, they can handle no. What they can handle is when they don't hear from you. And most of us procrastinate because we, you know, we hate to disappoint people. We're, re we're recovering people pleasers. 
Well, I'm honored that I didn't get the yes, no, yes email when I invited you <laughs> on the program. So <laughs> that would have been humiliating. You know who's a great example of this is our co-founder, Dr. Covey. His eldest son, who you know, mm. Dr. Stephen, or, or Stephen M. R. Covey, wrote the yes. book, The Speed of Trust. And this book has sold amazingly well, right? Two million copies. And Stephen M. R. Covey is very deliberate, like you mentioned, about saying no to new commitments if they might jeopardize his trust, his brand, with his previous commitments. He, lives, he leaves, leaves money on the table all day long. In fact, he probably says no to more speeches than he does yes because he wants to make sure that he delivers on his previous commitments, and that's his brand. And I think it's, um, it, it's inspiring for all of us to be more deliberate around what we're saying no to so we can say yes to the right things. Well, it's a little bit of a muscle so that the more you exercise, the easier it gets to deliver that message. So for me today, you know, it's a lot easier to say no than it used to be because again, I used to be a recovering people pleaser. I still am a recovering people pleaser. The other thing too, is I think for those of uh, the, of the people listening who have the benefit of an assistant, let your assistant do that. Like for example, I don't manage my own calendar. And so that is very convenient. So when somebody asks me, like if I bump into somebody on, on church on Sunday, and they say, hey, can we get together for lunch? I'd say, hey, I'd love to if I'm available, but why don't you send an email to my assistant, Jim, or send it to me and I'll make sure that Jim looks at, at my calendar and gets back to you. Jim has much less emotion attached to say no. It's much easier for him to say no than it is for me to say no. So I let him handle my calendar. Michael, I want you to use me as a guinea pig for a moment because one of the concepts that I really resonated with in the book was this idea of pruning. Uh, like you, I'm fairly busy and I want to be less busy. I don't see it as a moniker of success. I'm writing several books. I host a radio program on iHeartRadio. I'm an ink columnist. I have a day job in the, in the company. And um, I host this program. I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a husband. And, I, and I'm starting to say no to things, but I also find myself saying no to that interview, but yes to this interview, so my net is the same. I'm not, I'm not pruning at all. Right. Uh, I'm not alone, right? Everyone's got as much work as I've got going on. What advice would you give to high productive, high motivated people that want to prune, but also need to be aware of that kind of one-to-one -one swapping um, fallacy? Yeah, well, so the idea between the one-to-one -one swapping, or the idea there is that you can't keep saying yes, because you're gonna run out of time. So, so you, if you're gonna say yes to one thing, like I just had this opportunity come up in October for a speaking engagement, and my team had to say, okay, what are we gonna clear? Because he's not gonna like, you know, work all night. So what are we going to have to clear in order to accept that speaking engagement? So it really begins with the concept we already talked about with the Freedom Compass, but let me tell you how to get to it. So one of the things I do in my workshops and one of the things I do with my high-end coaching clients is I say, let's do a task filter, but just look at your calendar over the last two weeks or over your to-do list for the last two weeks and write down everything. Don't, you know, don't try to filter it. Don't try to sort it yet. Just write down everything. Then I want you to go back through each task, each kind of thing you do, and I want you to rate it for whether you're passionate about it or you're proficient. Proficient. So the things where you're passionate and proficient are candidates for your desire zone. Now, in my life today, and, and believe me, this is a journey. This is not going to happen overnight, but I'm spending about 90% of my time in my desire zone. So things that I love and things that I'm good at. And for me, that primarily means in my work life, three things. I'm either speaking, I'm writing, or I'm casting vision for the team. One of those three things. If it's not one of those three th things, 
that I say to the request or my assistant says to the request, sometimes my team says, nope, that's not for him. Somebody else on the team needs to do it because those aren't in his desire zone. And when he's in his desire zone, that's where he's going to make the most money for the company. That's where he's going to have the biggest impact on our results. And frankly, that's where he's going to have the most joy and feel like he's making the most contribution. So it begins with that task filter. And I have a worksheet in the book that I point to that you can download and do that. And then you map them to the freedom compass. But here's the cool thing. Once you identify not just the desire zone, but the drudgery zone, the things where you have no passion and no proficiency, those are candidates to begin eliminating. Those should be the first priority when it comes to pruning is prune out those drudgery zone activities. Michael, when you're coaching high performance leaders, what do you find are the biggest, most common pressures they're facing? And what's the biggest breakthrough they make from a particular behavior change? What usually releases them from their lack of freedom to focus? Yeah, I would say that one of the biggest things is they feel overwhelmed, but they have a hard time letting go. They have a hard time delegating. And here's the, here's the thing about leadership. Until you can scale yourself, you can't scale your business. And that means that you've got to learn how to delegate. Now, everybody talks about delegation. Everybody knows they how to delegate. But what I find is that leaders make one of three mistakes when it comes to delegation. First of all, they hesitate because they have these sentences rolling around in their head. They think, you know, if I want the job done right, I've got to do it, what? Myself. Or they say, you know, it takes longer to explain how to do it. I might as well do it myself. Or I can't afford to hire an assistant, or I'm not going to make the request of my boss because we really can't afford it. I guess I'll have to do it myself. Well, as long as myself, as long as you are the answer to each of those questions and you hesitate and don't delegate, you won't scale. You won't be able to grow your business. You won't be able to go to the next level of productivity or the next level of contribution. The other things that leader, the other thing that leaders often do is they abdicate, or I sometimes call it dump and run. They make, a, make an assignment to a subordinate, but they don't give them a lot of direction. They just abdicate, and then they're surprised when they come back at the end of the process and go, well, that's not what I had in mind at all. Well, abdication is a big problem when it comes to delegation. You've got to be clear, and we have a tool we talk about in the book called the Project Vision, Vision Caster, which helps you get it out of your uh, head and make it crystal clear to the person you're delegating. And then the final thing they do is they suffocate. If they don't hesitate or abdicate, often they suffocate and micromanage the person that they delegated to. Neither one of those are proper delegation. And that's why in chapter six of the book, I map out the whole process of delegation, including the six levels of delegation, the process of delegation, and how to become a master delegation so you can scale your business and scale yourself. Michael, I've been a leader of teams formally for over 20 years, and I think one of my biggest challenges, amongst many, trust me, is kind of translating, right? Translating the idea, the vision in my head into the ideas of other very smart, competent people. And one of my biggest frustrations is when things are lost in translation. That's not what I meant. You got kind of half right. of it. It's always my fault, right? When someone doesn't understand, it's because I've not done a good enough job of clarifying it, breaking it down. You coined this phrase about the vision caster as a tool. Expand on that. What, what, what is the tool oh. like? How do people get it? And what's the outcome if someone actually becomes proficient at the vision caster project tool? Yeah, so when you become proficient at that, you're able to replicate what's in your mind into somebody else's mind. And we do that primarily through the magic of writing. 
So thoughts disentangle themselves, passing over the lips and through pencil tips. That's not original with me. That was from the famous poet Anonymous. But thoughts disentangle themselves, passing over the lips and through pencil tips. So one of the easiest hacks for getting clear is to write it out. What do you see? What does this project look like when it's designed, when it's done and designed? And it begins by standing in the future and describing what you see. So for example, we have a program called the Focused Leader. It's a one day event. And so when I was first conceiving of that event, I knew that I didn't wanna do the logistics. I didn't wanna set up the production. I didn't do any of that, but I had a vision for it. So I described that in the Project Vision Caster and I described exactly what I saw when I walked in on the first day of that event. And so it's a matter of getting it out of my head, describing it as though it were a present reality. And then there's some other things on that form as well, including deadline and budget and so forth, level of delegation and so forth. But then I give it to the person, in my case, Susie, who's our director of operations. And I said, Susie, this represents my vision for how I want this event to go and what it looks like when it's finished. That's the key thing. I mean, Dr. Covey talked to, taught us that about you know, visualizing the end. And it's critically important to see the end. What does this look like when it's done? Then it gives her a chance to say, okay, I think I get about 80% of it, but this part of it's not really clear. What did you mean by this? And then we can interact and go back and forth. So before we've ever begun, we're going to make sure that we've got the same vision for what the finished product is going to look like when it's done. Then it also gives me a way to evaluate. So now I can go when I walk in that first day and say, okay, here's how I described it. And probably nine times out of 10 with my team today, they usually exceed the vision I had for it because they know what my expectations are and they know the way to create, create wow with me is to exceed my expectations, so they often do that. So if our clients and, and um, subscribers and listeners haven't read the book yet, I encourage them to buy the book. It's got so many great practical examples of how we kind of find ourselves struggling on focusing and prioritizing every day. It's rich with tools. Can people access the tools without buying the book and where do they find them? Um, actually, I don't know the answer to that question. I think you have to buy the book okay. to go to the link. Right. And I can't even tell you what the link is, but it's yeah. definitely in the book on how to get the tools. But they're, yeah. all, they're all free. So you just have to get the book and, and you can go to that page. No, that's, that's great. Uh, Michael, you've got it going on. I mean, you've spent a whole life as a, you know, either CEO, entrepreneur, author, speaker, podcaster, interviewer. What are some of the top three or four things, five things that you think you've learned that are replicable to everybody? Would you share those with us so people can take away some of the hard lessons you've learned in the next couple of minutes? Wow, that's a tall order. But let me tell you one of the things I talk about in the book that I constantly hear back from people was kind of a game changer for them. And it was this idea of daily rituals. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we're reinventing the wheel every day. And sometimes people have a, a negative connotation when it comes to rituals. They think of it as in the religious sense or whatever. I'm not talking about that. But what I am talking about is four sort of keystone rituals that if you'll engineer these, they can make a vast difference, not only in your efficiency, but your sense of satisfaction. And they can really set you up to win. So I talk about in the book, about having a morning ritual. You know, what are the things that you do before you ever show up at the office, before you really ever engage with your day that sets you up to win? And it's gonna look different for everybody, but what is it for you? By the way, everybody has a morning ritual. The problem is it's not well-intentioned, it's not thought out, and it's not necessarily designed to win the day. 
So I'm talking about things like for me, when I get up, you know, I'm going to pray. I'm going to do some reading. I do some journaling. I exercise. I go to the gym, you know, uh, so those are the things that are going to set me up to win. And I do those every single day. The next ritual is what I call the workday startup ritual. So this is the first thing, first 20 to 30 minutes when I get to the office. So for example, I'm not going to check email all day long. That is a recipe for totally being bogged down in minutia. You know, unless you're in customer service or something that really requires it, you can spend all day very busy answering email and get no traction in terms of the things that matter most. So the workday startup ritual, what are the three or four things you're going to do at the beginning of the day to get those knocked out so you're freed to, to really focus up to focus on your most important projects. Then correspondingly, or likewise at the end of the day, a workday shutdown ritual where I might visit my inboxes again, tidy up the day, identify my big three for the next day, which is another concept, and uh, just kind of prepare myself to really engage with my family when I go home so I'm not dragging work into my personal time. And then finally, an evening ritual. What sets me up, and that's really where the day really begins and where it's often won or lost, is what I do at the end of the day that sets me up for a great night's sleep so I can really win the day before it ever begins. So those four rituals, I would say, you know, are, are a big deal that are uh, applicable to anybody in any walk of life. Michael, you talked about the power of sleep when you opened the program. And would you share kind of what your late night ritual is to make sure that you actually accomplish that every night? Yeah, well, first thing, screens off. So when I go home, when I leave the day, uh, and by the way, my day, I have a hard stop at 6 p.m. In fact, in this office that I'm standing in, I have automated lighting. So the lights automatically turn off at 6 p.m. So at least for nine months of the year, I'm working in the dark if I'm still working after 6 p.m. So it's a great cue. So then I'm going to go in, and this isn't the whole evening ritual, but I'm going to have uh, dinner with my wife. And then usually at about 8 o'clock, I'm going to start to read a book. Yes, a physical book. And I'm going to start to wind down, get my head out of screens. I'm going to be winding down. I'm going to be reading a book. And then usually, um, honestly, for me, I'll take a hot bath, do some more reading. Then my wife and I get together. We share our biggest wins for the day. We pray together. And then lights out by about 9 or 9.15. So that's kind of my evening ritual. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. It's nice to see a glimpse into how balanced your life is. High performance during the day and with some kind of clear barriers on the ends. Michael, you've written um, uh, countless best-selling books. Everybody's got a book in them. And most of our guests, not all, but most have written uh, a popular influential book. What's your writing process? Any insights you might share on how you've kind of struck lightning on most of all your books? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Well, well first of all, you know, I'm enormously grateful um, you know, cause some of it, it feels like luck, you know, you, you try to write the best book you can and then you put it out there. You know, I think it, it really starts with understanding your market with understanding the reader. And back when I was in the book publishing business, which I was in for 35 years, I would have authors come to me and they'd say, you know, this is a book for everybody. And I would say, if it's a book for everybody, it's a book for nobody. So you've got to get crystal clear on the audience. What, what is the demographic, you know, sort of the statistical information about them. And then the psychographic, what are, they, what are they concerned about? So like, for example, when I wrote Free to Focus, I'm really writing to people that are feeling overwhelmed. They feel like there's more on their plate. They just don't know how to, uh, to, to deal with it. Then the other thing I like to do in a book is I like to come up with easy to understand frameworks 
that make the complex simple. So the Freedom Compass, for example, I think is a great example of that in this book where it takes a complex thing, makes it simple and makes it easy to implement. And then to have tools uh, there as well. I'll tell you another little hack. I just, I just did a webinar on this uh, this week on writing. But another hack is start with the easiest chapter and write that first. And we get a lot of advice from people that say, you know, eat the frog first, do the most difficult thing first. To me, that's sort of tantamount to walking into the gym and saying, hey, I'm going to walk over to the bench press and I'm going to put the more weight that I've ever lifted and I'm just going to try to lift that without warming up. No, you need momentum. You need to get warmed up. So write the easiest chapter first then the next easiest chapter. And so by the time you get to that big gnarly chapter that you've been procrastinating on, you've got so much momentum. And if that's the only thing that's keeping you from finishing the book, promise you, and I've done this dozens of times, you will finish that last chapter because it's the only thing standing between you and having the manuscript finished. So those are just a couple thoughts. Great insights. Uh, Michael, what's next for you? you uh, you've kind of achieved success and I guess nearly every area of your life, what's on the horizon for Michael Hyatt? Well, first of all, let me just let me just clear up something. I've had my sets of failures as well. You know, I went through a business failure in the 90s and I have setbacks and a lot of things that don't work. You know, we tend not to publicize the things that don't work, but there's, you know, every year there's things that don't work. But uh, my next big project, the one that's going to come out in 2020, is a book called The Vision Driven Leader. And it's where I've taken what I've learned with my clients and how I've tried to articulate to them how to create a vision script for their business so they can you know, create a, a plan, not just a plan, but a clear vision that they can articulate to others so that they can create alignment in their organizations and then drive execution. And it really begins with that vision, but how do you do it? And I'd never read anything on how to do it. And so I, that's what I've written in the book. Sounds great. I will send you an email, and invite you back on and hopefully get the yes, yes, yes response from you. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on, Scott. Michael, our honor. Best of success. There's a reason why your books have done so well. Michael Hyatt, author of Freedom to Focus. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you back here next week for another episode of On Leadership. If you're not subscribing, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. Sign yourself up. It's a free email. It comes out every Tuesday around 6 a.m. Eastern Time, where we feature a different guest every week. We'd love to have you, your family, and all your colleagues subscribe to On Leadership by visiting franklincovey.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week.